Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you're well. I hope you're excited for another episode of the show. On this week's episode of the show, I am joined by two authors in the new series from RJ Andrews, the Information Graphics Visionaries series. And to speak with me, I have, now if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see I'm holding up the books now. I've got Susan Schulten, author of the new book, Emma Willard, Maps of History. And I have Georges Hatab, author of The Graphic Method from Etienne Jules Marais. That's my terrible French accent. Both of them join me on the show to talk about their work, researching these two visionaries, collecting the graphs and the maps and the visuals that they need for the book for these two scholars, and the through line and the theory and the philosophy that pulls these two visionaries together. And we talk about how these two may not be the names you necessarily identify with the history of data visualization, but are extremely important to the field and how we can think about how these two scholars or these two philosophers or these two designers, however you'd like to think of them, educators, teachers, engineers, and how their work links to our work today. So I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode of the show with George and Susan. Hi, Susan. George, welcome to the show. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Hi. Hi, John. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, this is, this is very exciting. So I've got two of the books of the three on my desk right now. The third one is on, on Florence Nightingale's around here somewhere. Um, these are lovely. I mean, let's just talk for a moment before we get into introductions and everything, actually. Let's get into how lovely these books are. I mean, when you got it for the first time? Were you like just enamored with the feel of the book? I was, yeah. Um, and I have to tell you that I reread George's book yesterday um, on a, and I got a beautiful corner in my afternoon sunlit um, bedroom and I just couldn't stop touching it. <laughs> my finger, especially over the color and really yeah. enjoying the way that um, the visuals just leapt off the page. Yeah. Yeah, from my side, um... It's the same feeling. So the tactile aspect just yeah. came off directly after you unwrap the, the plastic. Yep. Um, and since I also had um, all three books, um, Emma Willard's poster <laughs> is actually in my living. Nice. Um, finally was able to find a nice uh, frame for it and put it up. Um, I think nice. the books hopefully will stand for a long while. <laughs> yeah. So I already got to like core of this, but um, I wanted to uh, give you both an opportunity to introduce yourselves, tell folks who you are, what you've done, and, and, and then we're going to get into these books and what brought you to each of these uh, amazing people um, in the history of DataViz. So um, Susan, I thought we'd start with you about who you are, where you come from, and, and what brought you to, to this project. 
Uh, well, thanks. My name is Susan Schulten. I'm a history professor at the University of Denver. I've been here for 27 years, so I'm a bit of an old timer here at DU. Uh, and I have long been interested in the history of maps and also visual culture. Uh, so most of the books I've written have been about the ways historic maps can open new windows onto the past for us. And in terms of Willard, I distinctly remember the first time I came across her in the um, late 90s, early 2000s. I was looking at old textbooks and uh, flipping through them, and they are mostly quite literally textbooks. And hers from the 1830s were just leavened throughout with these wonderful illustrations, but more importantly, graphics of time. Mm. And I was just stunned by them, and I got hooked. And so I've written and thought about Willard for um, quite a long time. And this was an opportunity to really delve into her graphic legacy. Right, well, that's great. Um, I wanna get further into your work on her background and her work, um, but maybe we'll turn to Georges first. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Um, I'm uh, Georges, or George, uh, Georges Atat. I'll try, <laughs> Whatever I'll, I'll, works. Try, I'll try the French accent, but I, I don't know, it's just, it's not, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all right. So, um, yeah, so I've been around um, currently based in Berlin, and I'm a research group leader at the Robert Koch Institute. Um, kind of funny to say, you know, um, from France, uh, from Paris to uh, the Robert Koch, uh, I wonder. <laughs> but it is really nice. Um, and I'm working and um, actively actually recruiting um um, between basically creating better abstractions for humans um, and to solve data visualization problems, and at the same time creating better data representations, um, you know, for lessening the effect of trash in, trash out when we talk about machine learning. <laughs> so mm -hmm. to put it nicely, that's how I would. Um, yeah, so how I came across Marais is a pretty long um down history lane, I would say. Um, I have been an undergrad in biochemistry in Paris, and I've come across uh, Marais through a book on physiology. Um, and it was actually other researchers that did this in the Marais lab at the time. And um, from there, I discovered uh, his photography, which is actually, I think, what he's most renowned for. Mm -hmm. um, Chronophotography and uh, yeah, since then um, I think at some point uh, RJ um, posted something uh, on uh, the stack of the uh, Data Visualization Society, and uh, I noticed it and uh, just reached out. <laughs> and I think it was clear that uh, we shared the passion for for uh, Etienne Jules Marais mm -hmm. um, and took it further. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So so RJ Andrews pulled together this this. What I'm going to guess is the first of many books in, in this historical series. Um, so th there's sort of a, a difference here, right? Because, George, your book is a translation of Murray's early work. And Susan, yours is more of a deep dive into, into Emma Willard. So that is an interesting piece. And I want to get back um, uh, later today about the kind of intersection, how there's a common thread between the series. But um, Susan, I thought we would start with you talking about Emma Willard. Um, you already mentioned her, her textbooks, but um, what drew you to her story? Um, what is it about her as an educator? I mean, that was the part to me that really 
maybe it was a piece that I didn't know enough about or, or just just she was kind of a revolutionary, as it were, in like the education world um, that I really didn't know about. So I just want to give you some time maybe to give folks the teaser of of Willard and, and her background and, and what draws you to her story. She's a phenomenally complicated and fascinating and deeply flawed and also brilliant person. Um, she's born in 1787, and I draw attention to that for two reasons. One is she's born outside of Hartford, Connecticut, uh, to a family, I think she's the last of 16 children, um, that is deeply, deeply patriotic. Her father was uh, reared her and her siblings to deeply value their American identity. The other reason I draw attention to that is in part because of independence. Emma Willard was part of the first generation of girls to be educated outside the home. And that was a pretty signal experience for her to be uh, educated at these little local schools, um, some of them more temporary than others, but to really realize uh, when she was among other students and with what you might call um, trained educators, both what she was capable of, but also the flip side of that is what she considered the deep deficiencies of female education. Mm -hmm. So she is one of those first women to be educated outside the home, but that marks her with a sense of just how much better female education could be. And part of the reason Americans know about her is that she was also the first, by the time she's about 20, to educate women beyond the age of 17 in advanced subjects. Mm -hmm. So at her Middlebury Female Academy, one of many schools she runs, she is enraged by what she sees every day when she steps outside her home and sees Middlebury College, which had recently opened exclusively for men. Mm -hmm. advantages of grounds, of faculty, uh, of subject matter. And so she determines that she will provide something for their female counterparts, their little sisters, if you will. Yeah. Um, so Americans know her as the first woman to provide an advanced, what we would say, a college education. So long before Vassar opens or Mount Holyoke or any of these other places that we know about, she's doing that kind of uh, university level education on a much smaller scale. Right. Her school still thrives today uh, near Albany in Troy. And mm -hmm. I visited last week and was able to see kind of the legacy of that. Um, but the part that I really felt like I wanted to contribute to with this book is not just her contribution to female education, but her contribution to visual education. Right. Because for her, the eye is the only medium of permanent impression. She said that over and over. And she's like many other people. I suspect Marae would be similar or Alexander von Humboldt or William Playfair, all of these folks in the late 18th and early to mid 19th century who believed that a visual language was possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so she doubled down for the rest of her career, beginning in the 20s with translating ideas, in this case, particularly geography and history into visual form. So can you tell me a little bit? So it was interesting, you, you said right at the beginning that at the time, textbooks were literally just text. Like, was she, she must have been one of the first to start implementing graphics and maps into her, I mean, we'll call them textbooks because that's what we call them, but implementing them in there? Yeah, and that's a that's an accident also of technology, right, as, um, as mm. print technology advances. Uh, there are some. So it really came home to her when she studied geography, like every other American through Jedediah Morse's Geography Made Easy which had a few images at the very uh, opening of the book, the frontispiece, for instance, or something folded in. But that was a very expensive proposition. 
And so she said very distinctly, Morse was good for reading, but bad for study. So in his mm. chapter on maps, he's literally describing what a map is, right? right. <laughs> right. And that made a real impression on her. Um, uh, but she is part of a, a whole host of folks by the 20s and 30s as print costs come down that can make their text much more deeply visual and illustrative. Yeah. Can you, before we move on to, to George's book, can you talk a little bit about the, the types of maps that she created and her technique of creating those maps? Because I think that's a, that's a kind of a technological question, right? Like how in the early part of the 19th century are you creating these pretty fantastic detailed maps um, when, you know, you don't have Google and you don't have satellites to do it for you? Yeah, so a couple uh, answers on that point. The first is that to the extent that there were maps for school children at that time, they were usually separate atlases. Mm -hmm. And so by the 20s, she's beginning to publish a little bit in that vein. Most of her texts in the 20s have accompanying atlases. So an atlas of ancient geography, an atlas for beginners, an atlas of American history. Partly what's interesting to me is that she considers the atlas the main action. In other words, the textbook is the adjunct oh, <laughs> um, yeah. as opposed to what we might assume otherwise. Um, and those are pretty big enterprises. They take a long time. They're fairly expensive. Um, and so gradually what she starts to do in the 30s is also move thematically from what you might call pretty straightforward maps, geographical maps that we would recognize to what she considers to be charts of time. In mm -hmm. other words, partly what she's trying to do is break the boundaries of a map and allow the map to tell more uh, of a story about time, kind of in the way that I'm sure George can speak to this, that Murray was always trying to integrate more than one variable, right, mm -hmm. into, into many of his charts. And that that's part of what was really fascinating to me about Murray. He's a little bit later than Willard, right? So he has the benefit of all the innovations that are happening in Europe in terms of cartographic and chronographic visuals. Um, but Willard is both accessing less and less expensive techniques for visuals, but also experimenting with more and more capacity for what a graphic can do. Right. Really interesting. Okay. So I want to come back to a few things because you mentioned Murray, which is a great segue over to George. George, I'm not even going to try to pronounce <laughs> Murray's names. I mean, cause I'll just butcher it, but, um, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about Murray and, and, and then also you, you've, well, I guess, I guess because it is a translation, but also in the, in, in your introduction to the book, you talk about his, what I'll put in quotes, his graphic method, mm -hmm. um, which I, I don't know if many people sort of think about placing Murray in sort of the echelon of, of people who sort of developed a graphic method. So I'm curious about how you might, uh, summarize or define his graphic method, but maybe give folks a little bit of a background here about, about who he was. And, and, and then you can uh, pronounce his first name with the appropriate French accent, because I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to try to do that. Thanks, John. It's all right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Etienne Jules Marais um, was born in Bonn, um, in Bordeaux, and this was in the 1830s. So um, it's very difficult, actually, it was very difficult for me to define Marais and I was thinking since um, two, three days now, what is the right word to use to really define him? Uh, and I think it's very difficult to coin such a person. 
Um, I would say the best way to describe him would be um, a man of Renaissance because he is a renowned French scientist. He has had, or he had a lot of, um, how to say, renowned um, uh, awards given to him. He was part of the Collège de France. So there is no need for an introduction there. And he was also a physiologist. He studied medicine. Um, he is a researcher in, in the way that he also approached uh, certain problems. Um, and then at the very end, I can say he was also a chronophotographer. Mm. Um, and often, actually, people um, connect Marais to uh, photography, to the you know beginning, early times of cinema. Mm. Um, so his work, I think, was significant in the development of cardiology, uh, physical equipment, aviation, even cinematography, and even the science of um, laboratory photography, which is mm. you know a very specific uh, field. Um, of course, there is a lot to be said about um, his analyses of motion uh, and how he went about to characterize them. Um, if I were to be as poetical as him in the beginning of his book, I would say that Marais as a person was to some extent fascinated with how everything actually has or is in motion. Um, the earth we're on, we as beings, um, all the other, you know, animals, uh, the birds, etc. Um, so, but away from this more poetical aspect, um, you know, on this uh, blue dot <laughs> in this yeah. blackness of space, so to say. <laughs> uh, so the, the method graphique or the graphic method um, is a very shortened title of his longer title which is uh, la méthode graphique dans les sciences expérimentales et principalement en physiologie et en médecine. Um, so the graphical method in the experimental sciences and mainly in physiology and medicine. So why I want to take a minute here to uh, go about the longer title, because we actually translated in this book the very first part of a five-part book, which in a second edition <laughs> had an annex for photography. Mm. Um, and so there is much more to the um, corpus, so to say, that he put together. Um, if I were to be succinct, um, I would say Marais pioneered the use of graphical recording in the experimental sciences um, using many of his instruments, or which actually many of those were his own invention. And he captured and were able to display then um, the data that was actually impossible to observe uh, with our senses alone, so to say. And this is actually his own introduction. It starts with um, basically the um, incongruence or the non-capacity of our senses to deal with such aspects of you know life or reality, so to say. Um, and he applied basically this graphical recording methods to uh, problems in physiology using these inscribing instruments or devices um, to investigate the mechanics, for instance, of the circulatory, respiratory, and muscular systems. Mm -hmm. um, and then after 1868, um, so at the age of 38 years old, he turned to the study of human and animal locomotion. There is another book. Um, titled Movement. <laughs> um, I think that's pretty blunt there. 
Um, <laughs> but in the second edition, in 1885, Marais then added this 51-page supplement on basically, um, you know, the development of the, the graphic method by the employment or via photography. And right. uh, there you can see that over time you realized that you need the scientific capture with, you know, moving to colloidal, for example, plates uh, at the time to capture what actually our eye cannot capture. Even in the book, at some point, he describes change blindness without coining the word because mm. it wasn't really characterized at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... It's very difficult to stop talking about Marais, <laughs> so to say. Um, but I would say that the combination of his work, um, at least in medicine and in the experimental uh, research part, was for the mechanical inscription of movements. Um, and he was even trying to, as much as possible, with the greatest, so to say, possible accuracy, uh, record was what was matched by his concern for simplifying basically the instruments so that they could be easily also used by clinical diagnosticians mm -hmm. or even be made portable, like, for instance, this femograph. Um, mm. So this is, to me, is fascinating because it was also heavily influenced by the era. I'm not a historian, but I think uh, the industrial era can attest to this heavy influence. You would call him sort of a renaissance man, which, which is... I think clear for anyone who's who's read even just the introduction of the book, but I'm curious, what would he have called himself? Would he have called himself a photographer, a scientist, a graphic designer? What would he call? He wouldn't call himself a Renaissance man, but like, what what was his kind of identification? I mean, he was a professor at the Collège de France, so mm -hmm. you would have to, I guess, address him with Professor Marais if you he was yeah. living. The way right. I think he would define himself as an interesting question um, and a difficult one. So he was um, renowned also in different um, research uh, bubbles, including Louis Pasteur. Um, he also even had a comment on cholera at some point mm. relating to public health. Um, I would say that he, in a way, was um, obsessed with his research um, because, I mean, he also had a fallout with, for example, a famous photographer, uh, Demini. Mm -hmm. um, and I presume that this is also related to his character. Um, but I cannot tell. I have not met the man. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> And I suppose today he would say that he would be an engineer, so to say. Mm. Engineering solutions, trying to miniaturize or make things portable, trying to record things. Um, yeah an engineer to track living, the living yeah. pretty much. That's right. No. Yeah. It's really interesting how we have changed in such a way. There's so much specialty in, in certain fields. Whereas, you know, we look back, you know, really not that long, 200 years, 150 years. And, and people were, you know, across all these different fields doing all these, all these different uh, innovations. So now that we have sort of this, background of of these two um philosophers educators graphic data visualizers what do you two see as the overlap or the thread that that binds them together um because they are 
your two books are two of a of a set of three, and or at least initially that RJ put together. That will, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he's working on expanding it. But, but from your perspective, what is the thread that that links them? And maybe Susan, we can start with you. I think there's a, a couple um, ways in which they're connected. I think one thing is that RJ identified these three individuals as folks, kind of to your earlier question, John, that who we may not necessarily identify as the fathers mm-hmm. and mothers of data visualization. So, you know, we hear a lot about Menard. We hear so much about Playfair, right? right. But he was trying a little bit to dig deeper and mm-hmm. to have a more fully original understanding of this. And that's part of what drew me to this project in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to answer your question about the through line, so something that George just said and really leapt out to me in his book was this concept of uh, innovation that Murray and certainly Willard before him were living through an utterly transformative period in terms of technological innovation, particularly around George's second point, which was movement. Mm-hmm. So think about someone like Willard, right? She's there. This is astonishing to me. She's living in Troy when the Erie Canal opens. She has a front row seat to the, yeah. the most transformative transportation technology to date that brings mm-hmm. in the entire hinterland, the upper Ohio Valley, Western New York, into the orbit of the Hudson, which means New York City. Mm-hmm. And so she's watching this utter collapse of distance and the collapse of distance has pretty important implications for what time means, right? And what maps are. And so when I was listening to George and reading his book, I saw the way that Murray was really trying to reckon with those technological upheavals as well and other technologies, right? I think Murray was much more attuned to scientific advances necessarily than Willard was. But both of them, I think, are trying to understand in this new experience of space and time, movement was the word George's used, how can we help people apprehend different meanings? So that's one through line. Um, mm-hmm. I could go on about Willard specifically, but I'd love to hear George's thought about others. Yeah, yeah so I think the part that, I mean, the, the starting with Marais and leaping to Emma, uh, Willard. So um, Marais' analysis of motion are to some extent, um, well, they are actually characterized by multiple exposures on a you know single photographic plate, and he is widely considered one of those pioneers of photography and an influential precursor in the history of cinema. Um, and in this regard, I see, I mean, this is one point of view of seeing Marais' contribution in terms of innovation for the specific capture of motion with this photographic gun or whatever other um, means. Um, When we think of the historic era, when we think of both of them, um, aside from the fact, you know, we're thinking of the American continent, we're thinking of the European continent, a lot of stuff is happening on both sides. Um, Mm. There is a, I would say, a revolutionary aspect to everything actually happening on both continents. Um, And when I think of Emma Willard, I see a person that has been through a lot and had struggled because, I mean, I don't imagine myself in that time living and being able still to move forward, learn more about things, try to actually, actually, I would say she is emancipated, right? 
Um, and I would, to some extent, also characterize Marais with that. But it's, um, I don't know, I mean, the world back then was also quite different. Um, he had also access to the right circles. He had access to, um, you know, he was at the Collège de France. So there are, it's difficult there to say that they are um, comparable in this regard. But for the really long thread, I mean, Nightingale is one stone away uh, one stone throw away from Willard, and yes. then Marais right. follows. Uh, so right. this complete era, in my opinion, is just um, filled with both struggle, which in a sense is, in a way, also the mother of invention. <laughs> um, yeah. And it has been, I think, in general, also push, pushing humanity and the best of humanity. And in yeah. my opinion, these three names, Nightingale, Willard, and Marais, come... Um, as, so to say, plucking the cherries from the tree that is, you know, the history um, across what could potentially be called um, the visionary series, <laughs> which mm -hmm. RJ, you know, topped it. Um, right. And the reason to this is Marais saw things from a different perspective that others couldn't at the time. Willard did things that others didn't at the time, mm -hmm. um, although there were also limitations, you know, of... The habitat limitations of um, being a human being in the specific area um, and being able to afford living simply um, right. or putting bread on the table. So <laughs> there are lots of these aspects, I think, that keep coming. Um, I would even dare to say that they would all three of them compare with Marie Curie. This is my opinion. Mm. I mean, they would effectively... Um, they did not, of course, win two Nobel Prizes across two different uh, fields, but uh, they were, to some extent, those people that went to the field, that created something, um, and that were, you know, collecting the data, trying to do things to make whatever is happening out there in the field digestible mm -hmm. and to connect with people. Yeah. And John, there's an anecdote that might be of particular interest to your listeners, if I, if you... Yeah. That's okay. Um, yeah, listening to what George just said, the way he talked about struggle and, and um, Willard having been denied certain things in her education, it really came home to her one day when she was in Hartford at one of these female schools, you know, where they were teaching her the finer points of needlepoint and painting. She yeah. um, had access on spring break to her cousin's library, and he had this incredible copy of Lebrun's the Passions, which was the most important drawing manual. And she grabbed it off the shelf and excitedly got all her art um, tools and started to follow the directions. And what Lebrun was most known for was mastering a technique of drawing human emotion. Mm -hmm. And she realized that she was completely stopped short because it entirely relied on geometry. And geometry had been denied to her. Mm -hmm. Advanced mathematics were not available. And for the rest of her life, she realized that visual depth, visual perspective, which was something she was so keenly interested in, in conveying ideas to the human mind, mm -hmm. uh, particularly distance of time, mm -hmm. um, that made her so aware both of the deficiencies of her education and then made her, to George's point, determined to master Euclid. Mm -hmm. um, the point being that it was in part her marginality, uh, which is not to deny her privilege, but to say that she realized so keenly what 
was lacking in her, in her education. And that was a way to go forward with visual education. So it's funny how her particular moment in time in areas that you wouldn't think would have anything to do with data visualization, right, became key to her determination to get to that point, which is just sort of interesting. I also think it's interesting because one of the things that I like to think about when I read these historical accounts is what can we as uh, folks working with data, visualizing data today, what can we learn, not just from this Let's, uh, George, as you mentioned, like, let's not just understand that there are a wider array of people, Susan, as you mentioned, other fathers and mothers of the field, but what can we learn from them when we are working in our own uh, day-to-day, when we're working with with our data? And I think one thing I'm picking out from from both of you is that there isn't one skill set, there isn't one thing to sort of focus on, that there's motion and animation and, and, and drawing. And, and so I guess I would turn that back to you and maybe we'll start with George. Like, what do you think readers should take away aside from these, their individual stories and what they did, but what should they maybe take away and try to think about implementing into their own process and into their own work? I think that's a really valid and good question. So in, in my opinion, what is clear to me across all of this um, series and whenever we're talking of any of these visionaries, the point is passion. So, if you're passionate but with something, just carry on, follow it, and see where it takes you. Um, I mean, Marais started with being a physiologist, studied medicine, and then at some point took a leap to move into something else. Um, I think that's that's the way to go. Um, if you see that you've exhausted your current position, you want to do more you want to learn more just go for it i think that's mm-hmm. that's the um the bottom line i would say for me if i want to say yeah. a short answer <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah susan uh i was i was um really struck when i got to visit the emma willard school last week and i showed some of the students at lunch um her techniques, because they know she's a pioneer of female education, but they don't know about the graphic legacy. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. I was showing them these wacky visuals, the temple of time or uh, the tree of time or the stream of time that she was so enamored with her innovations. And some of the students says, said to me, this is so much like my TikTok feed. And I said, <laughs> and I was embarrassed. I tried to pretend like I knew what they were talking about, but <laughs> pretty clearly uh, within like 30 seconds, it became clear that I didn't. And what they were saying was half of their YouTube videos or TikTok feeds that are instructional, meaning teaching yeah. them about something like so many young people now, if they want to learn something, they, right. they turn to podcasts like yours, John, but right. they were saying that many of their feeds are explicitly graphic Mm-hmm. In other words, when pe- that, in some ways, they see Willard's experimentation, even though some of the graphics are too clever by half, as sort of the antecedent to the just avalanche of visual information that we have today as an right. instrument. The other thing I'll just add, listening um, to both of you and listening to your question, John, is that Willard's goal always was to create what she called the artificial memory. And all that meant in the 19th century vernacular was memory that didn't come through your firsthand experience. In other words, Mm. memory that had to be generated. And memory was the gold standard for 19th century education. If you wanted to demonstrate mastery, you would have recall. And so one thing to keep in mind, which is different from Murray, 
is that everything Willard creates is with the end of helping students memorize something. Right. Um, whereas Murray, I think of him as just much more, I'll defer to George, but much more of a scientist, right? Someone who's genuinely trying to get to the next level of discovery. Right, do you see? Right. And that's yeah. something to keep in mind about their slightly different pathways to data visualization. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm happy to add a, f a few words also on, on yeah. Murray. So, um, it is important to know that it is the first major treatise on dataverse that, or data graphics at the time, at least I would say it like that, um, that was put together. Um, and he was to some extent one of the first people to go about describing the abstract geometry that goes behind um, doing graphics. Um, and in some ways, I think the first part of the book, which we translated um, and worked on together, um, is basically also demonstrating that um, data visualizations that we create can always be improved. And this is what Marais also demonstrated. He took about or took on the task multiple times to say, okay, this is maybe too much to present. Let's just take a piece of it. Um, or maybe let's try something new there, for example, for the train uh, connections. Um, so there's a lot, I would say, um, that can be made. And already by looking at this corpus of work, um, I would say that it's humbling to see that somebody so early in time already decided and said to himself, okay, it's all right. This doesn't look mm -hmm. very good. Maybe I try to do it again. Um, and what is even more amazing is that all of these are hand-drawn. We take sometimes a second, we write a script in R or in Python, and um, it's just granted. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are, have been skills that were needed, I think, to do all of these things, including you know, drawing, which Willard took on, um, which are granted today. Um, we don't need to draw things. We don't need to be very good at writing. We have computers, uh, we have keyboards. Um, so. These aspects, I think, also come um, into picture or into the picture and add also more value um, for the work, I would say. Right. I wish I had delayed that question to end on that because it's such a, a positive, affirming sentiment that we ended on. But I did want to ask one other question, um, which is on the actual uh, building of the two books, because uh, I'm curious about where, George, you talk about it in the introduction, where the images come from. Um, so I'm curious on that process. I think I think listeners are probably interested as well. Um, Susan, maybe we'll we'll start with you. Like, how did you get the images? What was the process of getting them? Like, you know, hot, you know, high enough resolution from you know 200 years ago that they would look good in you know a book that is not a is not small. Like, just I'm holding up for the listeners. Like, this is not a small book, right? So like, you can't just pretend. Oh it'll be in a small book and it'll be okay because you can't really see it. But like, these are all, both of these are high resolution images. So what was that process like for you and how did that come about? It's interesting on the one hand, because Willard was such a best-selling author. Um, so mm -hmm. the estimate is by the end of her life, there were a million copies of her publications in circulation. Wow. So you can get really inexpensively copies of her textbooks Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, one of the most thrilling things is that during the process of research, I found uh, an unknown mm -hmm. variation of her Temple of Time for English history that 
was uh, had been lost to history. So we found mm-hmm. it in the library company Philadelphia, thanks to lots of archivists and map dealers who help us kind of on a treasure hunt and trying to figure out where it might be. Yeah. Um, so there's really rare material and really common material. Your main question, though, is how do you get such wonderful um, resolution? We have all the credit to these archives, principally the David Rumsey collection at Stanford. So mm-hmm. David Rumsey shares RJ and my passion for Willard and for data graphics generally. And so they've done such incredible work over the years in digitizing her work. Mm. But also we drew materials from the American Antiquarian Society, um, the uh, Library Company of Philadelphia, like I mentioned, um, the Emma Willard School supplied some interior shots of her of her school, which were really helpful as we tried to reconstruct Willard's pedagogy. And then also at the last minute, I give, um, I give props to people here on the front range. There's some wonderful um, photographers, both at CU Boulder and U University of Denver, who really got us to the finish line with material that we otherwise um, couldn't find. So for instance, her wonderful um, textbook on morals for children, which was mm-hmm. one of the last things she wrote as she saw the public schools exploding and all these immigrant kids come in. Yeah. <laughs> she wanted to make sure they understood um, proper morals that she wasn't right. sure were being taught at home. So right. that I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, that that's great. That's great. Um, a lot of a lot of folks helping um, in different ways. Um, George, what about you? I know uh, there are not millions of copies of Murray's books around. It's a little bit of a different process. Oh, yes, definitely. You would not be able to find a Murray original for the, for any of these prices. Um, it's a bit of a shame. Uh, I actually do have a copy myself, uh, the mm. original. Um, this is, to be clear, a part of maybe two centimeters large, thicker than the one that you have, but contains all of the different parts. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, in French, um, with some antiquated um, formulations, so to say. Um, yeah. But yeah, so there has been a couple of aspects that um, I can address. So for instance, first the images um, that we took from the original book, and uh, then the extra images that we inquired, we added into, you know, the book because Marais references them and mm-hmm. there is unfortunately no visual in the original Marais. Um, and some of them he, of course, reworked. So first for the images, um, I want to say thanks, first of all, to RJ because he went about and, um, well, <laughs> how do I put this in a nice way? <laughs> he went about and, of course, opened uh, second edition of a Marais and put it, you know, flattened it, so to say, to take mm-hmm. these images with the help of a photographer with high resolution files um, being then used. Um, the first iteration was to look into, um, you know, these are the crispy details, look into how we can actually improve these images, maybe by using um, computer vision processing or uh, certain approaches that could help us. Um, for instance, if the book has a bit of yellowing, um, increase mm-hmm. the contrast when we can without taking it too far. Uh, then we went into a second iteration where we focused on, you know, um, we want to show actually the same equal size uh, graphic as it is present in the original in the printed book, yeah. uh, which we ended up successfully doing. And I was doing that yesterday just for the fun of it. Okay, that really looks good <laughs> and even better <laughs> than the original, uh, especially yeah. with the better quality paper. Um, yeah. 
And actually, uh, the final part was really um, going on manually. Um, RJ, uh, myself, um, through the images and working our ways through them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's basically for the images. Um, and the second part for the images we referenced, um, that Marie also referenced, and we had to hunt down, um, I think ended up also in involving a lot of great folks, um, like, for instance, the David Ramsey map. Of course, uh, this is, to no surprise, um, holds the key to beautiful photography and uh, pieces. Also, special thanks to um, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, the National um, Library of France, um, which we also annoyed with some requests and uh, or about <laughs> just purchase directly the files which we needed. Yeah. Um, but along all of this, I think the the niceness of all of this process or the the, the takeaway message is that it was um, all the time a work in progress, and we also came across very beautiful visualizations that we would not have otherwise. So yeah. Well, it's great. The books are a joy to hold. Um, I'm still a, a physical uh, book reader, uh, so I appreciate having a beautiful book to hold on to and read. Um, uh, so congrats to both of you. They're great books. Um, I hope folks will, will read them and uh, think about all the things that we've talked about today. So thanks, uh, Susan and George. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, great to chat with you. Thanks, John. Can we also just give one shout out to the art director, Lorenzo Fenton? Yes. Okay. So, okay. So, yeah. So, all right. So, so tell me, okay. So now everyone's like, wait, the show is over. Okay. So let's, 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 so tell me a little bit about Sorry, how man. that, because this is beyond, this is beyond my experience. So how does, so how does that work at the end? Because these are, my experience of publishing books is you send the manuscript over to the publisher and then they deal with yeah. it and send you some proofs and then whatever. But this, this is much more hands-on for both of you. So what was Loren, what was the process with Lorenzo like? Absolutely. I didn't, I, I was on a call once or twice with him as we tried to think about um, both the big picture thing yeah. that we were trying to create, like sort of aesthetically, but also details. But my understanding is that RJ was deep in the weeds with Lorenzo to the extent that Lorenzo was in Italy overseeing the printing and that there oh. were different iterations of the of the images where he said the color's not right. That's correct. And oh. making sure that they went back to the drawing board. So that's my understanding. Go ahead, George. Yes, exactly. Um, just wanted to also echo the mention of Lorenzo because... Um, he did a fantastic job. Um, and as far as I remember as well um, from RJ and from the feedback that I received and um, from getting in the call once with Lorenzo, he was really meticulous, um, had a lot of attention on the details, whether, you know, the pages are bleeding correctly, is, is there everything actually being cut correctly, um, right. are the colors correct? Um, so all of these aspects completely um, overwhelming. Um, and I think big kudos and shout out to him. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are uh, several spreads in both books that span two facing pages. So, and, and so they are, I'll hold this up for us, for, for the YouTube watchers, like this map in, in the Murray book, like it's not like an image on the left side and a separate image on the right side. They, they come together as a single, as a single image. And then, in the Willard book, there's a poster at the end. I don't know how many people know. It's kind of tucked in there at the, on the last, on the inside cover at the end. There's a little poster there. So um, that's a little 
I don't know, maybe that's an Easter egg. Um, <laughs> Cracker Jack prize. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's your Cracker Jack prize. To, to your question about production, that's why the book, it actually comes with a sheet of instructions, which is this is a book yep. that's been sewn, not glued. And so this mm-hmm. is how you relax the pages. And I was so impressed by the yep. level of care that both of them put into this work of art, um, right. which is, I don't know about you, George, but when people see it, um, even before they read it, they they just sort of marvel at the quality which they haven't held a book like this maybe mm-hmm. in a long time before. Yeah. Exactly. Um, nor, uh, nor have I. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, the, the, I have, I can only just give one more detail. Um, so, you know, all those listening interested in not yet, uh, you know, and have not yet, you know, um, bought the books, <laughs> either one of them or all of them, um, you should know that even the box was designed for the books. This mm-hmm. is how, to what extent um, this has been, you know, um, in the works and what has, how it has, it has been prepared. Um, so, yeah, it has been done with great care. Um, and I think there's a lot of time, effort, passion that we also put into the books um, that actually completely goes across the board for all those that participated. Yeah. Well, um, kudos to RJ, Lorenzo, all these different folks that you have relied on for all these different pieces. And I'll put links to all these uh, institutions and places on the, on the show notes so people can, can check them out. And of course, to both of you, uh, congrats on these, these books. They're great. And again, now we can, now we can finish off. Uh, now I'll say <laughs> thanks again. <laughs> thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I just want to let you know that my book, Data Visualization in Excel, is set to launch at the end of this week. It comes out on May 26th. I hope you'll consider picking up a copy. If you work in Excel, my book will help you create better, more effective, and different visualizations, helping you move beyond that standard Excel insert chart menu to create a whole range of different and more exciting charts. So. I hope you will continue to listen to the show. I hope you'll rate and review the show wherever you receive and listen to your podcasts. But I hope you'll just enjoy this episode and more to come. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy of His podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.